0: Welcome to the second week of Worlds of Warfare. As I shared with you last week, when God gave me these sermons, all three on one morning, I wrote at the top of a notebook page the three most important messages I've ever brought. And after the first one, and now after bringing this message several times this weekend, I'm convinced of it. Here is the thing about spiritual warfare. It's critical for us as daughters and sons of God that we know we're in it. Because if we're not in it, we become target practice. So today, I want to begin by giving you three verses that I gave you last week. And these verses sort of sketch out the parameters of spiritual warfare in the Bible. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, the Bible gives us this very important line, we are not fighting against people. As I shared with you last week, the church has made a lot of mistakes in the last 2,000 years because we fought against people. That was never God's intention. But I understand how it happens. Because we live in a world, and we'll see this clearly throughout today's message. We live in a world where Satan's voice comes through people. I don't mean by that that he's using his own voice speaking through people. I'm just saying people articulate the messages of Satan. And so we listen to those groups that say Satan's message. And if we're not careful, we can think that those people are the enemy. But what we must understand is they are the ultimate enemy. Victims of Satan. Satan has victimized them. And so, consequently, we shouldn't want them to fail. We should want them to be delivered from the bondage that they're in. But you understand what I'm saying. So often the church gets on the wrong page and we start trying to accomplish things through muscle and power and politics that were never intended to be accomplished that way. Scripture tells us we don't fight against people, never fight against people. If you have a person who's your enemy, you're, you're going about it wrong because here's the thing. We're, we're up against much bigger fuzz. The next part of that verse says against persons without bodies. Well, that would creep you out, you know, if that's the first time you've ever seen that. But that's what the Bible says. We're fighting against persons without bodies. And we know instantly we're talking about demons here. And just in case we might get weirded out by that, demons are just rogue angels. When Satan rebelled against God, he took a third of the angels with him. They kept their power that God had given them initially, but they used it for evil. So the Bible tells us we're not fighting against people, but we're fighting against the evil uh, persons without bodies, the evil rulers of the unseen world. It's really critical that we understand this, and I think there's so much we will never understand until we get to heaven. But angels don't have equal power. Certain angels were given greater power. And uh, so, what happened was there were angels that had more power, and consequently, they actually became rulers. Satan designated them to a certain power bases and countries. We see this in the book of Daniel, and I won't get into this today, but Daniel had prayed, and there was a delay to his prayer. And the angel who brought the answer to Daniel said, uh, The prince of Persia delayed me. And he's not talking about a human ruler. Evidently, Satan assigns rulers to individual countries. Persia was the most powerful country in the world at that time. It would be the modern-day Iran, and he was saying the demon assigned to Persia kind of held me up a little bit. But then he said something interesting. He said, Michael, the angel that was assigned to Israel, came and helped me. So that's something that we look at theologically in the Bible. I don't even need I mean, I need it theologically, but I can see it very clearly today that Satan assigns his powerful demons to nations, cities, but not just that power bases. I mean, entertainment, religion, uh, politics. And I don't mean by that that all those entities are demonic. I'm just saying he assigns his demons to those power bases. So that's what the Bible tells us. We don't fight against people, but we're fighting against people without bodies without, or persons without bodies, rulers of the unseen world, those mighty satanic beings and great evil princes of darkness who rule this world. And against huge numbers of wicked spirits in the spirit world. Once again, if you were here last week, I shared with you, Revelation chapter 5 teaches us that a conservative number for demons is 33 million. that's, That's why the Bible says huge armies of the evil world. Well, that, that would scare us if it weren't for this next verse, because the next verse says the weapons of our warfare are not human weapons. One more time. I want to just really hit something hard today. So many Christians are fighting against people and they're using the weapons of this world. They're using sarcasm and hatred and meanness and class warfare and race, racism. They're, they're, they're using the things of this world... And they're they're in a conflict with people. And, and, And that was never God's intention. The Bible tells us the weapons of our warfare, they're not sarcasm, they're not meanness, they're not manipulation, they're not control. The weapons of our warfare are mighty through God for the tearing down of strongholds. One more time, I want to appeal to last week. Last week, I shared with you that a stronghold is a lie that's so commonly held that it becomes universally believed. An example, that's Darwinian evolution. Um, I was taught Darwinian evolution from second grade on in public schools in, uh, in, in Texas. And I grew up a debater in high school and college. And one of the things that always amazes me about Darwinian evolution is that it doesn't evolve. It's about as silly as it ever was. You know, I'm, I keep hearing about the evidence, the evidence, the evidence. Well, as a debater, I'll say, okay, put it on the table. And every time I it's like, that is so worn out. I mean, the idea that, I mean, here's the thing, not even the ancient world before we have the, the onslaught of intelligent civil, you know, great civilization, not even the ancient world believed that it could have happened by accident. I mean, that is a silly, silly concept. And as a debater, it's so easy to take apart and unravel. But it's a stronghold. And so consequently, we understand the power of a stronghold. It is a lie of Satan that's so commonly believed that it almost becomes universally held. So the Bible tells us that the weapons of our warfare are not human weapons. They're mighty through the power of God to the demolishing or pulling down of strongholds. The third verse that I want to go back to from last week is the verse that explains the intensity of the times that you and I are living in. I mean, surely Satan's power has been on, you know, the human inhabited earth ever since its beginning. But in 2020, you got to know this is different. When I look at what's happening and just the anger and the hatred and, of course, the, the problems that we have with disease and natural disasters and just all the stuff that's coming against us at one time, it is very clear that there's an intensification of Satan's attacks. Well, last week, we saw the reason for that, Revelation twelve twelve. The Bible says the devil has gone down to you. He's filled with anger. He knows he doesn't have much time. Guys, never forget, Satan knows he is not going to ultimately win. He knows he's going down. He's known that since Jesus, well, I think since Jesus died on the cross and definitely since Jesus walked out of the grave. He knows he's going down. He has no delusions of winning. He just wants to take as many people with him as he possibly can. He wants to take you with him. I mean, you may be here in church today or watching online, watching on television, but I mean, it could be that, he won't, that, that you haven't yet fully resolved your heart to follow Jesus. I mean, you may have grown up in church and been here for years and know all the words, know all the language, carry a Bible and listen to Christian music. But if you haven't fully committed your heart to Jesus, he still wants to get you. He wants to take you with him. And on top of that, even if you are a Godfather, he wants everything precious to you. Your marriage, your kids, your life, your family. And so consequently, in in, in this age that we're living in, he can read the Bible. He knows the Bible. He knows his time is short. He can read prophecy just like you and I can, better for that matter. And he knows God never lies. It's a done deal. So he knows his time is short. Well, as we saw once again last week, every Christ follower has been called for this moment. God could have put you on the earth at any time in the history of mankind, but he chose these times. When he, he said, I want one of my daughters to be a warrior for me, he picked you. You're you're his choice. When when he said, I want a son who will will wage spiritual warfare and understand that he's not fighting against people and have no human enemies, but someone who will stand up and not wimp out against the forces of evil, he picked you, and he picked you for this time. That always gives me chills every time I say that. But as we look at American Christianity in 2020, we have to sort of deal with the painful reality that, I don't mean New Spring, but as a whole, American Christians are not doing as well as we could or should. Because the truth is, it seems like we're not having the impact. I mean, there's weakness in the churches today. There's embarrassing scandal, as we've seen in all the news this week, and crippling fear. So in today's talk, what we're going to do is pull over to the side of the road, get under the hood, and see what our problem is. In the 70s, when I was a kid, there was a popular expression. You know how it is, how that expressions come and go. You know, they're popular for a while and then they disappear. But there's one expression from the 70s that's kind of stood the test of time and people still use it today. I think it's because there's a basis of truth in it. I remember when people started to say, you're just acting a fool. Are you playing the fool? Now, that's an interesting statement when you think about it. Because acting the fool means you're not a fool, but you're acting like one. Or, or, or maybe even in a less critical sense, it would be like you're acting in a way that's not consistent with who you are. Well, to cut to the chase today, when I look at American Christianity, the problem is that we're playing the fool. We're acting the fool. We're not fools, but we're not acting in consistency with who God says we are. I, I feel this personally, and I'm under conviction just bringing this message. But you know how it is. One day we're very close to God. We feel like God's presence is very very close to us. We pray. We read our Bible. We're trying to follow God in every possible way. And yet the next day we're doing things that make us scratch our heads. We find ourselves using language that comes out of our mouths. And we're like, how can a God follower drop the F-bomb? And that's a good question, by the way. Because the Bible tells us out of the heart the mouth speaks. And we need to get clear on that. But it it comes out and we find ourselves doing things and saying things and hanging with people that that makes no sense. Or it could be just the opposite. It could be that we're not speaking up. It could be that we're around people in this culture today who don't have any use for God or God's rules. And, and, And it's like, well, I'm afraid to speak up because I don't want anybody to call me a Neanderthal. And to be honest with ourselves, if we were honest today, we would have to ask the question, what am I doing acting a fool? I'm not a fool. I'm I'm, I'm God's daughter. I'm I'm God's son. I've I've been everything that we just heard about in worship. God has raised me up for this time. God picked me for this time. And yet here I am not standing up for God, or here I am doing stuff, saying things, hanging with people that make absolutely no sense. Here I am playing the fool in 2020. Well, before you beat yourself up over that, and call yourself a hypocrite, there's an answer, there's a reason for that that we might not have thought about. And I'm not trying to like blow sunshine at us, but I'm just, I I just think it's important for us to to understand why we might do that. You and I live in an unusual time. There are two tidal waves rushing at each other. In other words, there there are two major forces happening, two major things about to happen in our world, and we're caught in between them. The first one is Satan's side is headed for a win. Let me put my fingers up. Win in quotation marks. But the evil side is headed for a win. It's very temporary. It only lasts seven years. By the end of it, the people who sided with Satan will regret winning because it'll be the tribulation. But we're headed for a win for Satan's side. Our side is... Moving toward that same destination, but we are headed for an evacuation. The Bible calls it the rapture. So, in other words, here's the thing you must understand this. You and I are Godfathers, God's daughters, God's sons, spiritual warriors. We're living in these last days where Satan's trying to take as many people as he can with him. There's going to be a temporary seven-year win, but God wants us taking care of business, getting as much done, reaching as many people so we can take as many people to heaven with us as we possibly can. So do you understand what I'm saying? There are two major events rushing toward each other, Satan having a temporary win and us being evacuated. Two reactions jump off the page to me. Number one, this temporary win is going to happen. It will happen. It is written And you feel that today. I mean, you you can see, as we said a few moments ago, we live in a time where there are lies that are silly lies that are commonly held that people believe, and it leaves you scratching your head wondering, how can people believe this stuff? It is because the evil side is headed for a win, and nothing is going to stop that. It is written in the Bible. The second reaction, though, that jumps off the page to me is that it's temporary, At Armageddon, the king will come, you and I will be with him, and Satan's wind will evaporate like rubbing alcohol on hot pavement. That's the second thing. But it leaves us today in an odd spot. When we look around, when we we watch the news, and we read the news, and we listen to people talk, or we see the stuff coming out of entertainment and, and media and religion, it's like every day it just screams at us that we're losing. I don't know how many of you played sports. But if you played sports, you know about something I'm about to say. When a team or an individual becomes convinced that they're going to lose with no way to win, that person typically, or that team begins to behave differently. They begin to behave like losers. They'll they'll have mysterious injuries in which they have to go sit on the bench. They'll, they'll, They'll just start sort of mailing in, looking at the clock, waiting for the clock to run out. And that's what I'm concerned about because, see, I think what happens to us is we forget about the promises of God sometimes, and all that happens is we look around, and the devil seems to be winning, and it's like, well, I guess we should just mail it in and hope for Jesus to come. Or worse yet, many of us are trying to find middle ground. You know, it is said, you know, back in the Civil War, the North were blue, in the south war gray there was one soldier that just decided he didn't want to be part of the war so he wore a gray shirt and blue trousers and both sides shot at him <laughs> and that's kind of where christians are today we're trying to find middle ground between the army of god and the army of the devil and it never is going to work because if you're a daughter of God, you can never be part of Satan's kingdom. If you're a son of God, you can never be on the other side. The Bible puts it this way. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? Do you remember when the Chiefs were in the playoffs last year? Do you remember the Houston game? I think it, was, it was the first playoff game. And, and, and I, I, when I saw the Chiefs are going to play Houston Airhead, I said, this is going to be like field dressing a deer. <laughs> oh, The Chiefs are just going to wipe them out. But it didn't happen that way in the first quarter. I mean, the Chiefs couldn't get anything going. And the Texans went up. It wasn't, it wasn't like 24 to nothing. I mean, almost 28 to nothing. And fortunately, they forced them to kick a field goal. Now, you, you look at the first quarter of that game, and it's like the Chiefs are going to lose. Now, what if Mahomes had said, when the Chiefs were down by 24 points, this is not going well. And what if he just decided, "You I don't know what happened today, but something is just not right. Suppose he went to the locker room and took off his Chiefs jersey and put on a Houston jersey and came out and started hanging around on the other side in the huddle for the Texans. Now, whether you were, had a, you were a ticket holder inside the game or if you were a tailgater out there in the parking lot watching it on your smartphone, you're going to say to yourself, this doesn't make any sense. I want my money back. But Mahomes didn't do that, did he? He kept his jersey on, went out and took care of business. I mean, I'm just saying that that's what God is looking for in, in his team today. Because so many of us, we're, we, 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 it's like we change jerseys back and forth. I mean, we can be at church, and we can be with God followers, and we have our God jersey on. But on the other hand, we, we can put our devil jersey on just about as easily. And what happens is we're confused about who we are. Our teammates are confused about who we are. Even the enemy's confused about who we are. The enemy's laughing at us, and right now in this service here on campus or watching, we're embarrassed just thinking about it. Because we know we're acting the fool. Not a fool, but we're playing the fool. But we're not here to beat ourselves up today. We're here to beat this problem. We want to overcome. And just so that you'll feel a little better, it's good to know that one of the greatest heroes of the Bible had the same problem that we have. If I asked you who were the greatest warriors in the Bible, it probably wouldn't be long. In fact, you might pick this guy first. It wouldn't be long before you pick a guy named David because you know his story. Now, when David started out as a teenage kid, he was pretty clear on who he was and who the enemy was. He had no question about it. He understood that the primary enemy of Israel was the Philistines. Now, the Philistines didn't live in another country. They lived in five cities along the coastline of Israel. They were always the nemesis in that day of Israel. One day, David, a teenage kid, he wasn't part of the army because they didn't think he was old enough. His dad sent him down to the encampment of of, of the army where his older brothers were soldiers and said, I want you to take your brother some food. He was a gopher. And he got down there, and there was this nine-foot-tall Philistine flipping Israel off and flipping Israel's God off with both hands. And he said, send me out a man to fight. And the, people of the, the soldiers of Israel, including the king, were like cowering down and just waiting for him to go away. And along comes David, and he said, I don't understand. I don't understand why the army of God would let the army of the devil come over here and flip God off. And somebody ought to do something. And his brother said to him, would you just shut up and go back to the sheep? You're embarrassing us. Oh, by the way, that's what tends to happen when a warrior, a daughter of God will raise up a standard. Is Somebody will say, oh, you don't have any business doing that. You're embarrassing us. And David said, there's a cause here. You know the rest of the story. He took a bag of rocks and a sling, and he went down into the valley of Elah and went mano a mano with a nine-foot-tall giant. By the time it was all said and done, the giant had lost his head, and David had led Israel to a great victory. I would say he was pretty clear early on on who he was and who the enemy was. But how many of you know in following Jesus some weird stuff can begin to happen? Stuff that doesn't make any sense, contradictory stuff. Because you're a son of God, a daughter of God, and you believe the promises of God, but stuff begins to go sideways that makes no sense. And real quickly, that happened in David's life. And there was a complicated set of circumstances that David found himself in. It all started with the fact that the man who was David's king, God gave up on because he was too full of himself. And so you've got to understand this. This is so important. God came to the prophet of Israel, Samuel, and he said, I'm tired of Saul. Saul won't follow me. I want a king who will do things my way. And he said, go down to Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse, and you tell Jesse that I want him to bring his sons out there because I picked one of them to be king. He was a man after my own heart. So they had a little private ceremony there. I guess a few people from around the town in Bethlehem. And the sons of Jesse paraded themselves before Samuel. And every time God said, no, I don't want this and don't want this and don't want this one. Want this one. And finally, all the sons, the first seven sons of Jesse had come by. And of course, they'd left David back there with the sheep because he was nobody. Nobody expected anything from him. He was a run of the family. And Samuel said to Jesse, don't you have any more kids? And he said, yeah, I got one more. We don't expect much out of him. He's just the runt and he's out there with the sheep. And I know this must have been a Baptist crowd. I pastored a Baptist church for many years because Samuel knew what to say. He said, we don't eat until you get him here. And they brought David in and Samuel took one look at him and God said, "This this is who I want. And he poured the oil on him. Now, here's the thing. Some of you come from a faith tradition where you talk about the anointing of God. Others have not. Let me just tell you what the anointing of God is. It's two things. Number one, it's God choosing a person for a job and equipping them to do it. Every one of us has an anointing on our lives. Every every single one of us who's a Godfather, Something about you that God picked for this era. So now, David is anointed. But here's something that you don't read about a whole lot in the Bible. Work this out in your head. David is anointed in a private ceremony, but the old king is going to be on the throne for 10 more years. How many of you know that could be a recipe for some trouble? So anyway, the things that happen next are are in the Bible. Uh, You know, David is suddenly blessed of God. He becomes a warrior. In fact, Saul at the time, the king at first, he decided David would be a great guy to have around after what he did to Goliath. And actually Saul makes David head of the army. And it's working out great because David is winning battles, but one day it all goes sideways because as the army's coming home, the women of the town are on the sides of the road and they started singing. And they started singing the first verse of the song. The first verse said, Saul has slain his thousands. And Saul's like, that's going to be a hit. I don't know great music, but that's going to be a hit. It's going to be on the hit top 40. But he didn't like the second verse because the women started singing, David has slain 10,000. And from that moment on, Saul hated David and tried to kill him. And it got so bad that David had to run for his life. And I'm sure the word got finally to Saul that he had been anointed as the next king. So there's so much I could talk about. We'll stop it right there. I just want you to picture what's going to happen now because David is running for his life. He's all, his emotions are all over the page. He's anointed, but now the king wants to kill him. And it makes no sense. And here's the thing. He is caught in between tomorrow's promises and today's pain. And suddenly, New Spring, you listening? Suddenly the unthinkable started to make sense. He would go to the city of the Philistines and just try to blend in. Oh, David? You're the one who went down, mano, mano, I'm just going to, you know what? Following God is just too difficult. I'm going to go down to the city of the Philistines, and then I'm just going to try to hang out there and blend in. I mean, 1 Samuel 21 tells us David shot out of there running for his life from Saul. He went to Achish, king of Gath. Gath is the town Goliath was from. Now, I want you to think with me. When David goes out there to hang out with the Philistines, he's got to find some way to engage, to mesh, to sync with the enemy. People who are sworn enemies of God, sworn enemies of David's people. You know, it used to be if you bought furniture, or some piece of machinery, you could just go buy it and bring it home with you and it was already, you know, it was already set up. But today we have to assemble everything, Right. I mean, probably one of the weirdest understatements of all history is some assembly required. And the stuff that we buy, you know, a lot of times when we get to pieces, they're not engineered well. You ever try to put something together where clearly it's clear that one piece was engineered for one product and another piece was engineered for a different product and the holes don't match and you get your hammer out and you try to make it, but it's just never going to match. New Spring, please understand this. This is where the average Christian in America is. We have the idea that standing with God makes us fear rejection. Maybe in these days, like David, we're even hunted by the PC police, so why not join the enemy or at least try to blend in? But the holes are never going to match unless you're a fake. If you're a fake Christian, it'll work. The holes will match. You'll do fine with the Philistines. But if you're a daughter of God, You can never match up. If you're a son of God, you can never match up with the devil's crowd. I mean, David was not a fake. He believed in the Bible. He trusted in God. He can never be a Philistine, but he's caught in between fear and the Philistines. He's caught in between his anointing and his worries. He's caught in between the promises of tomorrow and the pain of today. Now watch what happened. When the servants of Achish saw David, they said, can this be David, the famous David? Is this the one they sing at their dances? Saul kills by the thousand, David by 10,000. When David realized he had been recognized, he panicked, fearing the worst. So right there while they were looking at him, he pretended to go crazy started acting the fool. He was pounding his head on the city gate, foaming at the mouth, spit dripping on his beard. Akish took one look at him and said to his servants, Can't you see he's crazy? Why did you let him in here? Don't you think I have enough crazy people to put up with? Get him out of here. One of the greats of all time. Acting the fool. I mean, don't you want to like walk over to David as he's lying there rolling around, banging his head on the gate, spitting on his beard? And don't you want to say to him, David? How'd you get here? I mean, it wasn't that long ago. You were a teenage kid that believed in God and had, you, you believed God for the impossible and you went down there and beat Goliath and now here you over here trying to fit in with the Philistines, spitting on your beard, pretending to be, acting a fool like this. David, what happened to you? But a lot of us don't have to ask David, do we? because there was a time when we followed God and we believed the Bible and we stood for what God said is true. But now we've kind of like negotiated away a whole lot of things that we used to believe. And and even though we might not be literally laying around spitting on our chin, what we're doing today makes less sense. What I love about this story as I close out this message today is David didn't stay there. If you go into chapter 22 and look at the first verse, the Bible says, So David got away and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Oh, my goodness. If you don't know the land of Israel, this might not make any sense at all. Why? In fact, we could ask him. We could, we could go over to David and say, David, I understand you're leaving here and you're going to the cave of Adullam. Why did you pick that place out? You could go to Jerusalem. You could go to, back to Bethlehem where you were born. I mean, David, there's so many places you could go. Why would you want to go over to the cave of Adullam? Well, if you were to go to the cave of Adullam, it would be in a hill, about a 500-foot tall hill that would overlook a valley, the Valley of Elah. Elah was where he killed Goliath. Are you hearing me, Christian? I mean, you're a daughter of God. The Holy Spirit lives in you. You've already picked up on this, haven't you? David went back to the place where he remembered who he was. There's no sense for a champion of God to lay around spitting on his chin. He went back to the place where God was powerful in his life. He went back to the place where God made sense and the world didn't make sense. David said, I remember at one time I walked into this valley and the grace of God gave me the power to overcome the most powerful warrior in the world. David's like, I'm going back to where God worked in my life. That's not the best part. If you turn over to the biggest book of the Bible called Psalms, it's the book of songs. Most of them are written by David. And you get over to the 34th Psalm, before you get into verse 1, there's a little inscription that helps us understand this Psalm. And here it is. A Psalm of David regarding the time he pretended to be insane in front of Abimelech who sent him away. So in other words, when David went down to the cave of Adullam and started remembering who he was, he started writing about the promises of God. See, that's what happens when we get caught in between the promises of tomorrow and the pain of today. We start forgetting those promises of tomorrow and focusing on the pain of today. And that's when we start acting a fool. I want you to look at what he wrote. I can't read the whole Psalm. You can do that when you go home today. He said, I will praise the Lord at all times. I will constantly speak his praises. I prayed to the Lord and he answered me and he freed me from all my fears. In my desperation, we'll talk about that next week. In my desperation, I prayed and the Lord listened. He saved me from all my troubles for the angel of the Lord is a guard. He surrounds all those uh, who fear him. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right. His ears are open to their cries for help, but the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. He will erase their memory from the earth. The Lord hears his people when they call to him for help. He rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. And I love verse 19. The righteous face many troubles. The Lord comes to the rescue every time. Do you hear anything there about being afraid of the Philistines or afraid of Saul? He goes back. It's better to be in the cave of promises than the city of the Philistines. He goes back and he begins to remember the good things that God has promised him, and it changes his destination. You and I today were caught in between the promises of tomorrow and the pain of today. When that happens, you believe the promises. Last week, as I was closing out the message, I shared with you how that we have been given the armor so that when Satan starts attacking us, God has given us armor to hold up. In the book of Ephesians chapter six, there's just one line that I'm gonna pull out of the armor. The Bible says, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one or the enemy. Take up the shield of faith. See, here's the thing. If we don't have the shield of faith in front of us, every one of Satan's threats will get through to us. This is the reason why so many of us wind up playing the fool. We're like on social media. We're like watching television. We're listening to the voices of this culture. And it's like we don't have the shield of faith up. And every one of the darts of Satan come through that say, I'm going to win. I'm going to win. And you're going to lose. And those darts come in. And if we're not careful, we'll start playing the fool. But the Bible says, take up the shield of faith. That's, that's interesting language. The shield of faith is not going to jump up by itself. Could we hear that today? It's, it's, the shield of faith is not going to be there by accident. You're going to have to reach down and pick it up and hold it up. Because when you believe what God has to say, the enemy's darts cannot get through. And you say to the enemy, I am a daughter of God. I have been called to be a warrior. And you will not find me on the floor spitting on my chin, playing the fool, because I believe God. God has made me promises, and he will keep his word. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services.